0: We will be looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 this evening. I know we've been going through it rather slowly, so to hear that we're going to be covering that many verses might seem as a shock. But hopefully as we walk through the text, you'll see why I decided to take this text as a chunk rather than breaking it up. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner, And to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you thankful for the privilege that we have to worship. And we pray that you would now teach us from your word and give us eyes of faith that we might behold this glorious vision of our resurrected and glorified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to the end that we might be strengthened to endure the journey that is this life until the very end. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we don't like to think about it much, but it's true that Jesus promised us, as his sheep, as his followers as his people, that we would experience tribulation in this life. There are many places we could go to in scripture to see that, but I just want to read for you Jesus' own words in John sixteen thirty three, where he says to his disciples before he's betrayed and crucified, in the world, Jesus tells them, you will have tribulation. That wasn't just true for the disciples, that's true for us as well. We will experience persecution at the hands of those who hate God. And so that poses a question for us that we must answer. How is it that we are to endure and persevere in the faith in the midst of tribulation when we're tempted to abandon faith in the Lord so that that tribulation might stop? What do we need? is the question that this text answers what do we need in order to endure in the face of tribulation and Jesus actually answers that question for us in the exact same passage that i just read from earlier john 16:33 listen to what jesus says he says i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world. So what do we need to know in order to endure in this life as we have tribulation because we're Christ's followers? We need to have a clear understanding of who he is, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that he's overcome the world. That's how we are to take heart and persevere and endure. And you see, John knew that. He knew that about the churches to whom he was writing. And maybe I should back up. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that John needed this vision of himself as he was experiencing tribulation. He knew that the churches that John was to write to needed this vision as they were experiencing tribulation. And brothers and sisters, this vision has been preserved for us through the ages by our faithful God so that we might be encouraged to endure until the end as well. And so as we look at this glorious vision of Jesus, I want us to look at it under three headings. First of all, I want us to look at John's commission or John's calling. We'll look at that in verses 9 through 11. And what we'll see is that John's commission is different than our commission, our calling, but there are also similarities. And so I want us to hash that out. How is our commission like John's and how is it different than John's? Second of all, we need to understand John's comfort. Because as we look at the comfort that John receives, we understand that this vision of Christ was intended for our comfort as well. We'll look at that in verses 12 through 16. And then lastly, thirdly, we'll look at John's response, 17 through 20, because this is meant to be our response to this vision of Christ as well. And so my hope and prayer is that the Lord will use this glorious vision of His Son to cause us to endure and persevere in the tribulation that we will inevitably face as God's people. So let's look first then at John's commission and ours in verses 9 through 11. Look first at verse 9 with me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now notice right out of the gate that John doesn't start out saying, John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he doesn't start out with that because that wouldn't be true. He starts out with that because he doesn't want to start with the ways that he's different from his audience, but the ways that he is similar with them, the common ground that he has with them. And that common ground is that he is a brother and partner with them in three realities. They're partners together, brothers and sisters, in three realities because they're in Jesus. And so he lists those. First of all, he says, we're partners in the tribulation. Again, we already established that in the introduction. We will experience tribulation as God's people. Secondly, he says, that we are fellow partakers... In the kingdom, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, right? We've been brought out of the domain of darkness, the slavery we experience to the flesh, the world, and the devil. And now by God's grace and because of Christ's work, we've now been brought into the kingdom of his glorious light. And so now they're members of this kingdom, Christ's kingdom. And then thirdly, not only are they fellow partakers of tribulation and the kingdom, but also patient endurance. In Jesus, the Spirit will empower them to patiently endure this tribulation that they are going to undergo. And again, these are ours, along with John and the churches to whom he wrote, because we're also in Jesus. God has graciously saved us. And John starts with this, and then he goes on to say, And look, this is showing up in my own life. Because I'm a part of God's kingdom, I'm experiencing tribulation, and I'm patiently enduring that. Look at the rest of verse 9. He says that he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is a little island, a little prison island off of the coast of modern-day Turkey. Still there today. No one's going to go there for their vacation. Because it's a rocky, it's a bunch of volcanic rock shooting out of the ocean. And the Romans built this prison there for exiles to be put on, those who they deemed dangerous. And so that's where John is, alone, far away from the churches. Uh, why? He tells us on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was an eyewitness to what Jesus did and said in his earthly ministry, and he would not be quiet about it. He was bearing testimony to the word of God. Even under threat of death, he wouldn't stop. And so how do you deal with someone like that when you want them to be quiet? Well, you put them on an island as far away from anybody as you possibly can. And that's what they've done with John. He's off alone experiencing this suffering, this tribulation, because he is faithfully, patiently enduring. And while he's on the island, he experiences or receives this revelation. And so he begins to explain those circumstances to us in which he receives this commission. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So it's the Lord's day. It's that day in which the church in the New Testament now corporately worships their risen Savior. It's no longer Saturday. Why? Because Christ was crucified for our sins on Friday, remained in the grave on Saturday, and then rose from the dead on Sunday. And so to note that huge shift, the church now worships instead of on the Sabbath, as they did in the Old Covenant on Saturday, now they worship on Sunday. John's probably missing his fellow believers, but he's still worshiping the Lord. And then something happens He's in the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that John's emotions were flying high as he was worshiping all alone in this prison out on the island of Patmos. No, this is a unique experience that the prophets experienced, like Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 3, in which they are fit to receive a revelation or a vision, not with their physical eyes, but with their mind's eyes. And so John's saying, listen, I'm in the same vein as the Old Testament prophets who have come before me, and I'm receiving a message for you, for the churches. And it's while he's in this state that he then hears a loud voice like a trumpet. Now that's significant. Why is that significant? If you know your Bible, major shifts in salvation history Take place and are usually announced with a loud trumpet blast. I don't have time to go through all the examples of that, but just think of Moses before he goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from the Lord in Exodus 19. What bellows forth from the mountain? It's a trumpet blast, isn't it? And so, what's being announced to John here is this change in salvation history, this new epoch, and he's receiving this message from the Lord, and he is going to then deliver it to the people of God, even as Moses did on Mount Sinai. So what does the voice say? Well, look at verse 11 with me, saying, write what you have seen in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, this is, again, a similar thing that Moses is commanded to do in Exodus 17. Isaiah is commanded to do this in Isaiah 30. Jeremiah is commanded to do this in Jeremiah 36. So what's happening? God's giving revelation, and he's telling his prophet, write it down for the good of my people. Now, you may ask yourself, why these specific churches? Why these churches that are listed here? They really existed. They're historic churches why these and I ultimately can't give you an answer to that question other than the fact that they needed this vision so that they could persevere in the tribulation but what is significant is that there's seven of them because this is a symbol for completeness or fullness and so what we're being told is that this vision was not just for John not just for the original seven churches but for all of Christ's churches throughout salvation history and so what we see here then is John's commission As he's on the island of Patmos in prison, he receives this vision and he's commissioned to write it down for the encouragement of Christ's saints. And just by way of application briefly, what's our commission? What's our calling? How is it like John's? We're not going to receive this vision like he did. That was a unique thing for him. But what is our calling? Our calling is like John's. And the believers that received this letter in the seven churches in that we are a part of Christ's kingdom by God's grace. And so, therefore, we will experience tribulation at the hands of Christ's enemies. By the way, that's not new just for New Testament saints. That's been ever since the fall. Do you remember that in the curse, the Lord said there'll be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? Who are the seed of the, the serpent? Those are unbelievers. Who's the seed of the woman? Those whom God graciously enters into a covenant relationship with. And ever since the fall, there's this enmity between the two. And that's true for us as well. But here's the thing. I think we find that shocking. We find that shocking. And so we're shocked when we actually experience tribulation. Persecution from unbelievers. We're like, oh man, where's God in all this? Has he abandoned me? Am I really a believer if he's making me suffer like this? Yes, as you experience tribulation... And patiently endure. This is evidence that you are actually a part of Christ's kingdom because He promised, they persecuted me. They hated me. They're gonna persecute and they're gonna hate you as well. Are we ready for that? Are we still shocked when that happens in our lives? You should take that as confirmation that you are actually a part of Christ's kingdom and are patiently enduring it for His glory. So we've looked at John's commission. Or calling, and how that's our calling as well. And next, let's look at John's comfort. John's comfort and our comfort. Look at verse 12 with me. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So, what happens? John hears this loud noise, and I don't know about you, but whenever I hear a loud noise, I instinctively turn around because I want to see what's going on. Where did that loud noise come from? I want to get a visual on this. And that's exactly what John does. He swings around and he hears this maybe vaguely familiar voice, right? Because John was one of Jesus' disciples. So maybe he turns and he's expecting to see Christ. He turns around and what does he see? He sees seven golden lampstands. Now, what's that all about? Well, you can jump down to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 and see at the very end there that Jesus reveals to John that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And why? Because these lampstands are, they're giving off light. They're giving off light in a dark world. Israel was likened to the lampstand in the tabernacle under the old covenant. And now the church, the church are those lampstands. And they're giving light and bearing testimony to Christ. And why are they golden? Because they're precious to God. They're precious to Christ And so John turns and he sees this, but he doesn't just see lampstands. He actually sees someone among the lampstands. Look at verse 13 with me. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this language is extremely significant. John sees one like a son of man amongst the lampstands. And so this language is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 and, well, verse 6 in particular, but all of Daniel chapter 7. And what John sees is the Danielic son of man who is brought before the Ancient of Days. Yahweh himself who is seated on a throne and the judgment books are laid before him and the son of man comes and he receives all glory and honor and power and a dominion that will last forever and all creation worships him. He is the one who will judge the nations. He will crush Babylon. He will crush the Medo-Persians. He will crush Greece and Rome. And so John says, I see this promised Danielic son of man and what's he doing? (laughs) He's amongst the lampstands. He's amongst the churches. And the way he's described is very powerful imagery that shows us that he's there as a priest. I mean, just his presence there shows us that he is a priest, doesn't it? Because try to think back to your Old Testament knowledge. Who are the ones that were charged in the Old Covenant to tend to those lampstands in the tabernacle or in the temple? Who was it? Anybody know? The The priests. The priests were supposed to make sure that there was oil in the lamps and were lit in the right length. We know that from Leviticus chapter 24, verse 4. And so here is Jesus, the Son of Man, the great high priest, caring, tending to, making sure that the lights are bright on the lampstands, his churches, giving testimony to him. We get more of this priestly imagery in verse 13. Uh, look at the tail end of it there. He says that he's clothed, describing the Son of Man, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This was a part of the priestly garb that God commanded the priests to wear as they served in his presence in the temple in Exodus chapter 28, verse 8. And so, what is John saying? He's saying, symbolically, I'm seeing Jesus represented as a priest. Among the lampstands, caring for them. Now, can you imagine what a comfort this would have been to these persecuted Christians? Some of them are going to lay their lives down. This is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Where is Jesus? Is he far off doing something else and not aware of what's happening to us? Where is he? And what John says is, my eyes were opened, the curtain was rolled back. And I see that Christ, as the great high priest, is present with his people by the word by His Spirit. This is why communion is so important. As Pastor Chad was talking about this morning, the Lord's Supper, we're actually communing with Christ. He's present with His people and He's caring for us and loving us and tending to us. This is an incredible comfort in the midst of tribulation and we need to, even though He may feel far and distant, rest in this reality and behold it with the eyes of faith. But here's the thing, John isn't content to just say, You've got some mere human priest in your midst. He also has this symbolically represented to him that Jesus, the son of man, is divine. Look at verse 14. He describes the son of man this way. He says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, you may wonder, how does that show us Jesus's divinity? Well, again, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. But there, it's not a description of the Son of Man. It's actually a description of the Ancient of Days. It's the Ancient of Days who has hair like this. And so now that John is beholding the Son of Man, Jesus, with this kind of hair, what's being communicated to us is that Jesus and the Father are one. The Son and the Father are both God, along with the Spirit. But what's being revealed here is that the Son is divine even as the Father is divine. And again, you can imagine how this would be of great comfort to the church. Because who's in the presence of the church among the lampstands? It's not some mere human. It's God himself, Emmanuel. God is with us. He's come down and he now dwells among his people. And so even though we are experiencing this suffering, he is with us. God himself is with us. But John doesn't stop there. This glorious vision of Jesus goes on to symbolically represent Jesus as a judge. A judge who will conquer all of his enemies, whether they're inside the church or whether they're outside the church. Look at verse 14 with me again. The hairs of his head were white. Like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, this is a reference to the book of Daniel, but now it's Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6 where the Son of Man, there's this terrifying vision of him coming in judgment. And one of the descriptions is that his feet are like bronze. They're like on fire. And so what's he coming to do there in Daniel chapter 10? He's coming to judge. And so it's this picture of he's morally pure. He's fit to judge the nations and he will trample them down and crush them. No one will be able to stand in his way. He omnisciently does this because he is all powerful. Wait a minute. I didn't even read that verse, did I? Did I read the wrong verse? Did I read verse 15 when I said I was going to read verse 14? Anyway. I skipped, so I won't go back to that. But let me point out something to you in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That is what I meant to jump to, not to the other thing. And this is a reference to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. The Son of Man has these eyes that are a flame of fire. And he's, again, coming in judgment. I already explained that part of it to you. And so he sees all things. He omnisciently knows everything that happens. Hebrews chapter 4, right? He discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so Jesus is coming to judge. And John tells us later in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12, speaking of Jesus who's ready to do battle. His robe is dipped in blood. He's riding on a white horse. He's coming to cut down the nation's. John picks up this language and says his eyes are like a flame of fire. And so he comes. The burning feet is the same idea. I already explained that to you just out of order, so I'm going to skip that one. And then the final description we get of Jesus as judge is in verse 16. Look there with me. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now this symbol is uh, presented to us first in the scriptures back in the book of Isaiah. And so if you look at a place like Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4 or 49 and verse 2, the servant of the Lord has a sword, a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and with it he cuts down the unbelieving nations. He cuts down his enemies. And so what's the imagery here? It's that with his words of judgment... With the words of judgment that he speaks sovereignly and accurately, he cuts down his enemies. And who is that promised servant? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why John picks up this language here. And he picks it up later on in the book, again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, where Jesus uses this sword in fulfillment of the Isaiah passage to cut down the unbelieving nations. But here's perhaps what's a little more shocking to us. Jesus also threatens the believers at the church in Pergamum that he will come and visit them and cut them down with the sword of his mouth if they don't repent. That's in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16. We'll look at that more in the future. But what's the point of this symbolism then? Jesus is amongst his churches to judge them if they don't repent and to judge the unbelieving nations that are bringing persecution and suffering Upon them. Now, we may not like this part of the vision, (laughs) but we need this part of the vision. Why do we need this part of the vision? That Jesus is among his churches as a judge. Two reasons. First of all, for our comfort. Why is it comforting to know that Jesus is in our midst to judge those who won't repent? Well, it takes the temptation to bitterness towards those who are causing us to suffer out of our hands. I don't have to try to exact justice on them, I don't have to take it into my own hands. Why? Because I know that Jesus, who is the protector of his church and a just judge, he will come and he will cut his enemies down. Whether they're in the church, identifying with the church and trying to cause problems there, or they're trying to persecute the church from the outside, Jesus will cut them down. And so I don't need to take this upon myself. And you actually see that in the text here, that Jesus is this conquering warrior. At the very end of verse 16 John describes Jesus as his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's a direct allusion back to Judges chapter 5, verse 31, where in this song it said that the sun, as it rises, is like a warrior who rises after slaying his foe. And so Jesus will do this. He will conquer all of his enemies and his church's enemies, and we need to take comfort in that. But second of all, we need this vision of Jesus as a judge among his people because we need to be warned ourselves. We may look at this and go, oh, well, that's great, but that, I'm a believer. So that, that part of the vision, Jesus isn't here to, to cut me with the sword. Well, no, that's foolishness to just dismiss this warning because how does the Lord use this warning for those of us who are believers? He sovereignly ordains it and sovereignly uses it to strike fear and terror in our hearts. So that we look to him in faith and we repent and we draw near to him. What's the first thing my son wants when I discipline him? He immediately wants to hug me. He immediately wants that. He's been warned. He's been threatened. And now he wants to be close to me and reassured. And that's exactly what these warnings about Jesus being amongst his people to judge does in us as believers. It causes fear and trembling and godly repentance and increased faith in the Lord. So we've looked at our commission, we've looked at our comfort, and now lastly let's look at John's response and what our response should be as well. Look at verse 17 with me. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Take note of what John's response is not. Now, John was friends with Jesus in his earthly ministry, so he knows him. But he doesn't say, hey, buddy, Jesus, long time no talk. Jesus is my homeboy. There's not this familiarity that causes him to disrespect or irreverently address Jesus. No, instead, John responds the exact same way that Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and on and on responded. He falls on his face in terror, in awe, in reverence. At this vision of the glory and the splendor and the majesty of his risen and resurrected and glorified Savior. He's paralyzed in fear. He's useless pretty much at this point. He stands before Jesus. He's got to fall on his face. He must bow in worship. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus reaches out gently with his right hand. What's the right hand, by the way, symbolically in scripture and in literature in general? It's It's the hand of power. And he reaches out and he touches John gently on the shoulder, strengthening him so that he can actually endure all that he's about to receive. And Jesus tells him, fear not. And you see, after this glorious vision of who Jesus is, John would have just been completely useless and spent and could have done nothing. He would not have been fit to receive this vision. The rest of it had Jesus not done this. And you see, brothers and sisters, the same is true for us when we come to worship God. We should not come with this irreverent familiarity. Yes, Jesus is your friend, John 15, but he's not your friend like your other friends are. He is God himself, the one who's created everything out of nothing. And so when we come before him, there should be fear and trembling, and we don't even approach any further until he puts his hand upon us and strengthens us and says, fear not. And Jesus gives John the reasons, by the way, why he doesn't need to fear. Look at what he goes on to say. Why does John not need to fear, but should rather be comforted by Jesus's presence? Look at what he says at the end of verse 17. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, we don't have time to to cite all the references in, in Isaiah that this is alluding to, or even to where it's quoted in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where the Lord God says he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm God as well. I am sovereign over all things. It was through me that all things were created. It's by me that all things are held together. And it's by my power that all things are brought to their appointed end. And he's sovereign over John's salvation. He's sovereign over our salvation. From beginning to end. He is the sovereign Lord who's even sovereign over the tribulation that John and the churches and we will experience. And so this is meant to comfort John. But Jesus goes on to say even more comforting things. Look at verse 18. And the living one, Jesus says of himself, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's alluding to his work of redemption. Because what's the first thing he says? He says, I'm the living one. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 26. What does he say? He says, The Son has life in himself, even as the Father has life in himself. So what's the point? Anything or anyone that has life has life because they have received that from the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit who have life in and of themselves because they are God. Now think about that. The one who gives life is life himself, willingly condescends, assumes a human nature why so that he can die the living one dies why for your sin jesus tells john for the sins of the churches who i'm having you write to and sovereign grace for your sins the living one died for us and our salvation and yet he didn't just die then he rose from the dead jesus says and behold i am alive forevermore he resurrected on the third day and ascended to the Father's right hand, and he will never die again. And since he conquered sin and death, he has the keys of death and Hades. And think about what a comfort this would be to John and to these believers to who he's writing. What do keys give you access to? They allow you to unlock doors and lock doors. And what Jesus is saying is, no one takes your life unless I allow them, unless I open that door. I have the power to open it and to close it. And guess what? If they do kill you in a horrific, brutal way, As will happen to many of these recipients of this letter, I rose from the dead and conquered it. I have a glorified, perfected, resurrected body, and I have won that for you as well. As surely as I have that, you have that. So John, fear not. Don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid of your circumstances in the sense that you need to turn away. And through all of this comfort and this strengthening that takes place, John is now ready to receive This vision. And so that's why Jesus says what he does in verses 19 and 20. Look there with me. Jesus says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so John is to write down what? He's to write down all that will happen to the church In between Jesus' death and resurrection all the way up until the end of all things when Jesus comes back a second time. And you see what John understood as he was writing all of this down and what he wanted the churches to understand that he was writing to. And Sovereign Grace, what we need to understand is that as we, as a part of God's kingdom, face tribulation, the only way that we're going to be able to patiently endure is if we have this vision Christ firmly planted in our minds that's why as Jesus writes these letters to the seven churches he keeps coming back to this vision again and again and again and we'll see that as we walk through the seven letters but we need to cling to this we need to understand who is amongst the churches Christ our high priest our judge who is God himself and he will cause us to endure until the very end so that we can say along with the apostle Paul what then shall we say to these things